Now, by the way, this may not be like rock-solid precedence for, for a church meeting on Sunday, but you know what it is rock-solid precedence for? Long sermons. The Bible seems to command this very thing. And I, for one, am going to do my best. Stuart's on fire today. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Say that in the most positive way possible. While he was sound asleep, sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. And the moral of the story? No, it's not. Don't have long sermons. Well, how do you get that out of that? The danger of long sermons? We need to do some better exegesis here. No. If you sleep in church, you'll die. Point number one. Write that down. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him, don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. Well, I guess it is. Now, by the way, he had, Eutychus had, uh, an apostle with miraculous powers. If you fall asleep in church, I don't know if anybody has that ability. Be aware. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to... Sa These are all islands. There's a, you know how down the East Coast, there are like barrier islands, and if you're... If you, if you want to sail from, let's say, New Jersey, the Garden State, uh, down to Florida, as much as possible, you try to go through the barrier islands because the sailing is much uh, more pleasant uh, and, and the seas are, are, are much calmer. That's exactly what's, what's going on here on this ship. Um, the day after that, we crossed over to Samos. On the following day, arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem. At that time, Asia would have been the churches that we uh, hear about in, in uh, Revelation, right? La La Laodicea and the, the church in uh, Pergamon, Ephesus, Theatira, etc. That, that, that area there, which is kind of modern-day Turkey, would have at that time been referred to as Asia. He was looking to just get past that and get right on down the coast, down the Med, into Israel, because he'd like to get back to the celebration of Pentecost, which would have been 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. As a side note, um, there, there is a plurality of elders that are mentioned here. Uh, we see that in a, in a few other passages, like in James 5, when the elders come together and pray for those that are sick. Uh, also, the, the, the idea of a, a plurality of, of elders 
is, um, is, is mentioned back in Acts 14, verse 23, uh, and also when elders are, are told, but Timothy is told to go and appoint elders in, in all of the churches. And it's, it's based on that, that we kind of hold as much as we can, whenever we can, to the idea of a plurality of an eldership. Uh, and, and so it, it is you kind of using what biblical data we have that we look at it that way. Um, so anyway, he, Paul had decided to sell past Ephesus. Okay, from Miletus and to Ephesus for the elders of the church, verse 18. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. So now as we go from verse 18 uh, down to verse 32, we, we are going to now have one of the most intimate looks at Paul that we have in the New Testament. The most intimate look at an apostle that we have in the New Testament. This is different from all of Paul's other speeches, from all of the apostles' other speeches. All of the other speeches in the book of Acts, all the addresses in the book of Acts, are always a presentation of the gospel to those that are not yet believers. For the first time, we have Paul settling in on the beach in Miletus with a small group of those that he would have known very well because he spent three years in Ephesus. And he'll, he'll mention those three years in just a moment. And this is such a beautiful look and we need to make the most of this. This sounds more like Paul's letter to the Thessalonians where he had been ripped away from them and cared so deeply and wanted to know about them. And in that letter, he talks about how dearly he loved them, how he, they're always in his prayers, how he was like a nursing mother, so gentle among them, so excited to complete in them the great work of Christ that needed to be completed. It is, it is that sense that we have in Paul's letters. Now, in some of his more cyclical letters, like the letter to Ephesians, by cyclical, I mean a letter that would have rotated around, or the letter to Colossians, which we know rotated around, we don't see that depth of intimacy. We see more of a presentation of doctrine that was useful for building up the church. But here, as we see him now just gathered with like his boys, right? Three years. These are the guys that he probably appointed elders, guys that he converted, studied the Bible with, worked side by side. By the way, with them and with others, they were able to allow all the province of Asia to hear the word of the Lord, which we read last week. All the province of Asia to hear the word of the Lord. What if we were able to do that in Hampton Roads? Do you know what that would take? It's not overwhelming. Let's just say we were the only fellowship to go after that. The 800 people of the Hampton Roads Church. And we were to reach the, the 1.6 million people in Hampton Roads. But let's say not all of them are... Uh, you know, kind of of age, right? You're not going to preach the gospel to two and three year olds. But, but if we were to kind of just look at the, the, the age of people that you would bring the gospel to, guess how many people in three years we would have to average per day just reaching out to, to try to get them connected to Jesus in order for all of Hampton Roads to hear? Two. Two. We could replicate what happened in Asia in three years ourselves if it were just two but are you willing is that what you want would that be inspiring do you care that much about Hampton Roads do you, do you recognize why God has put you here what is the great purpose of the next three years of your life what, what do you think you'll recognize as the great purpose of the next three years of your life in hindsight in the age to come as you look back I, I think we'll recognize what it would be but let's move on. 
So here we go. Here's this intimate look. And by the way, the, the, the title of my sermon today is The Secret of His Strength. Who, who by this point in time has not been absolutely enthralled with the power that God has allowed to be deployed through Paul? Holy smokes, this guy is just killing it for Jesus. I mean that in a positive sense. All over the Mediterranean, all over the known world. First missionary journey, second missionary journey, third missionary journey. Again and again, so effective. And, and sometimes I wonder, like, what was the secret of his strength? It, it kind of reminds me of the Samson, Samson and, and Delilah story of Judges 16, where repeatedly she keeps saying to him, tell me the secret of your great strength. And badgers him, badgers him, badgers him. That's a different story. But, but, but that, that same idea, what is the secret of your strength? I think if we were to sit down with Paul in a setting this intimate and we're saying to him, Paul, you know, as we're gathered on the beach, as you're saying goodbye, as you're sailing off, one last thing, what's the secret of your strength? How is it that you were able to be stoned and left for dead and get back up and go back into the city? How is it that you could be rejected by your own people repeatedly and nonetheless shake it off and head back to, to preaching the gospel? How is it that you've been left destitute, that you've been shipwrecked so many times, that you've received the 40 lashes minus one, that your life has been counted of nothing? How is it that again and again, Paul, that you have been absolutely disgraced for the sake of the gospel and nonetheless you rise up, overcome, persevere, bring the message, see Jesus flourish all throughout this area and, and take the Roman Empire and flip its worldview on its head so that even they admit these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What is the secret that you're able to do that? And I think we're going to see it as we read through this account. But I, but I know for me, by the way, as, as I look at Paul and then I look at my own effectiveness, and I think, wow, I mean, all that he's able to do, maybe, maybe he had something that I just, I just didn't have. Maybe he has like this like kind of super energy pill of the Holy Spirit that gets him out of bed every morning. And it gets them like on the front line of bringing Jesus unfiltered again and again. Or maybe he just knew his Bible so much better than I knew. Maybe he just had a, a kind of a, a band of brothers that fought side by side with him that we just don't have. You know, in, in all of those things, we, we actually have a greater revelation of Jesus having all of this than he had. We have the same spirit that was given to him, that is given to us. Now, yes, he had miraculous healings. That, that, I'm sure that's pretty sweet. But also, Jesus is the same, Hebrews 13 tells us. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If we believe that, if that is the, the trust of our lives, then, then these words don't get discounted by us. The example of discipleship, follow me as I follow Christ, Paul says, that example doesn't get filtered by us where we think, well, that was then, this is now. No, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The spirit of Christ that dwells within us is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
What is it then? What is it then that allows him to be able to do what it is that he does? Let's read. Verse 18. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. That's the same wording he uses in 1 Thessalonians when, when he lays out one of the great chains of discipleship. Jesus, in beginning the, the book of Acts, we, we see that Jesus kind of initiated it by saying, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have taught you. That the entire process of the book of Acts is built on this idea of discipleship. That as each one teach one, as one follows Christ with, without any kind of degradation of the standard of following Christ. So the next person who follows them and the next person who follows them and the next person who follows them, that that is the key. And that's why I think Paul here is saying to them, I want you to know Jesus and I want you to know it through my own life. Amen. Difficult, of course, to say. Mm-hmm. You know that I have, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing. Humility, tears, testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. In saying I have not hesitated, he, he used the word that, that would is sometimes friendly, I didn't shrink back, but it, it could also just simply be, I did not cower. I did not conceal. I did not withdraw. So when I brought the gospel to you and to others, there was no cowering, no concealing, no withdrawing. Which implies that you would be tempted to do so by the very nature of the gospel. Because it wasn't just simply a message that would have been received intuitively, but rather counterintuitively, that it would have gone against the grain of all of the hearers. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I guess the church gathered in a, in a variety of configurations. I have declared both to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Amen. What's interesting is he says here, I have declared what? Repentance and faith. Later on when he says, I have declared... He will say it again, but this time he'll say the gospel of grace. What is the gospel of grace? Well, it certainly includes repentance and faith. Verse 22, and now compelled by the spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Again, same exact phrase as testifying to repentance and faith in our Lord. Verse 25, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today, I am innocent of the blood of any of you. How is he innocent of the blood of anyone? Because of this. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. In other words, I wasn't ashamed. I didn't hesitate. I didn't conceal. I didn't cower. I didn't package it in any certain way. And I, and I didn't 
pass over anyone either. As I had opportunity, as God put people in my path, I'm innocent of all people's judgment because I was faithful to the call that Christ has given me. Verse 27. Uh, verse 26 again. Therefore, I declare to you today, I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And now he gives the charge to the, the boys that are hanging with him. They're men. Uh, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseer is the word episkopos, uh, which is which is also translated elder in different ideas. The, the idea of elder or overseer are overlapping titles throughout the Bible. Be shepherds of the church of God. And then look at this phrase, which he bought with his own blood. Wow. Purchased by the blood of Jesus. All of us, as we're gathered here, all of us, as, as any of us tries to even shepherd, realizing the value of that which has been brought together. The value is nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ. Or the life. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which is bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. This is an internal matter he's talking about. In order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Three years, night and day with tears, never stopping. Again, going back to that idea of the whole province of Asia heard in three years. Well, yeah, if somebody is modeling Paul, they would be modeling someone who never stopped night and day with tears, reaching every single person. What if we just had a night and day connection to someone out of love in Hampton Roads? 1 a.m., 1 p.m. If just that, I'm not even, I'm not even saying, well, what if, we, what if we modeled Paul night and day every day with tears that, that he is given as a model to these men? But if just an a.m. and a p.m. offer, invitation, connection to Jesus... Wow, what could be done through the power of all of us? If, if the secret of his strength in some small way became the strength of ourselves. Wow. Verse 32. Now I commit you or commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs, the needs of my companions, and everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Interesting, Luke captures words of Christ that are not in the Gospels. That's a unique um, characteristic of this, of this passage. When Paul finished speaking... He knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. Well, what a connection they must have had, eh? What grieved them most was his statement, they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. 
So what, what is the secret to his strength? I mean, he mentions the Holy Spirit. He mentions grace repeatedly through this. He mentions Christ. He mentions Jesus as his Lord. He mentions the aim and the purpose that he has. He has all of those things. And, and I think, you know what? We have all of those things too. But there's something about him that I think really displays the secret of his strength. And what, in a sense, unleashes the strength to change the world. And there it is. Verse 24. I consider my life nothing to me. With all that we have, Christ, Spirit of Christ, church, the gospel, the truth, the blood of Christ, the awareness of our value in the sight of God, with all of that, all of that can amount to an anemic body of Christ if any of us decides that we will no longer go the route that Christ gives as a precondition. What is the precondition of following Christ? Deny self. The very model that was Paul's life before them. A life not concerned with self at all. But we live in a, in a very treacherous time for that. Because we have a perfect storm amongst us. We have amongst us the greatest moment of individualism ever in the history of the earth. And on any other place on earth. Here is the greatest individualism that is, that is boiling over. Secondly, we have Madison Avenue pumping more billions of dollars into carefully crafted, well-researched campaigns to turn every one of us into consumers. And we also live in the greatest era of self-esteem. And the greatest value placed upon self-esteem that has ever occurred in the history of mankind. All of that comes together at a time when Satan would be glad to see self rear its ugly head, insert itself back into your walk, and absolutely take the legs out from every one of you, every one of us. Here's an interesting thing. I think I've showed this before. Look at, look at this list of kind of really cool stuff. To be righteous, focused, determined, anointed, promotion, praise, centered, sufficient. To be confident, to have congratulation, to be important, to be justified, serving, satisfied, seeking, involved. These are amazing things. If this is the characteristic of, of all that we do, that's a pretty good description of all of us. But, you want to ruin the whole thing? Here's how you do it. Just rip it all to shreds. By all you have to do, just add self. We add self to anything in the gospel. We add self to anything in Christ. And it all comes to nothing. And Paul, interestingly, despite considering his life worth nothing, also recognized that his life was of immense value because his life was accounted for by having been purchased by the very blood of Christ. Think of the worth that God tells you that is yours. You are worth the blood 
This is not like, you know, giving blood at a blood drive. You are worth the blood that takes away the life of my son. That is your worth. So Paul wasn't one who, you know, kind of was moping about thinking, I stink, I stink, I stink. No, 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 there was none of that in him. He had a godly confidence knowing who he was in Jesus because of Jesus. And, and it was phenomenal of what it is that he was able to bring. Again, maybe he was particularly striking when he entered a room. Well, we know when he entered Iconium that we have a, uh, a, a an account, an early account from church history that what Paul looked like was short, bow-legged, bald, hook-nosed, and a unibrow. So, I don't think it was he had this like grand persona that, hey, look who's come to town. I think he would kind of shuffle on in unnoticed. But then when you see a life no longer constrained by self, a life that is able to explode in Jesus because nothing is filtering it back, wow, that is the secret of Paul's strength. And it's the secret that can be our strength as well. Is that if we just simply take self out of the walk. Take self out of the description. What it is that we could do. There was a, a, a CEO of Coca-Cola, kind of the longtime CEO, Robert Woodruff, who, who famously once said, famously if you worked for Coca-Cola, uh, who, who famously once said, there is no limit to what one can accomplish if one does not care who gets the credit. A life lived selflessly is a life without limits. The minute that you allow self-interest, self-consciousness, self-reputation, self-congratulation, self-seeking, any of that to come into our walk, you are taking the value that is you, the power that is you, the affirmation that you've been purchased by the blood of Christ and absolutely degrading it. Degrading it back to the flesh. Degrading it back to just our own strength. On our own strength, no, we can't do a transcendent work of glory. On our own strength, the best that you're going to achieve is really whatever your aptitude tests said that you were supposed to do with your life. You're so much more than that. You are so far eclipsing of that because you have a significance that is not based on your own efforts. You have a significance that is based on the effort, even more so on the sacrifice of Christ, saying you are worth this much. The value that you have is inestimable and the power that you have is incomparable. Because I die not just to redeem you, not just to value you, I die to rise and send you the power to achieve the very purposes that I have given you, that I have, in a sense, commanded you. But, but, but guess what? That if you just let yourself stay out of the way, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, the very things that Paul did as he followed Christ, wow, what it is that we can do. So let's, let's look at Paul as he really does exemplify the secret of this strength. So when... There is no regard to self, no asserting self, no entitlement. Then you have love without limits. That's right. 
This passage begins and ends with tears. Begins and ends with an intimacy and a vulnerability of love. When we don't get in the way, we're vulnerable. We're connecting. This is my challenge. This is my huge challenge right now. Is to get myself out of the way and and allow myself to to need and connect and and to love in the way that Paul loves. To what degree, my goodness, would we be knitted together as one after another, we get ourselves out of the way? What would be the connection in our families? What kind of talks would we have husband to wife, wife to husband, kids to parents, and, and parents as we have intimate moments with our kids? Not just a lecturing time, but a vulnerable, love without limits time to our kids. And Paul, in loving without limits, laid down his life again and again for the people that he needed to reach. My goodness, God has given you people to love. He's given us people that are crossing our paths and in our life in in a million different ways, given us each other to love. But here's the hard part is I think, oh, I don't know. I had a hard day. I don't go to Bible talk right now. I'm not sure. Oh, we're supposed to get together for a discipleship time and a degree. Ah, you know what? I, I think I just need me time right now. You know what will really recharge me and speak to my soul and honor who I am in Christ? Binge watching that next show on Netflix. I think that will actually reach me just where I need to be reached. But we all buy into that lie. Because the other big thing, in addition to individualism and consumerism and self-esteem that is coming our way, is the idea of amusement. The word amusement means it's, it's not what amuse does. A, amuse, you know, in, in, in kind of Greek literature, muses were those that inspired you. To do things beyond yourself. Inspired you to live life of significance. To write great things. Paint great things. Teach great things. Embrace great things. There's a a, kind of an interesting book out right now called We're Amusing Ourselves to Death. That instead of going after the greatness that is meant to be ours because of the great value that is ours, we're cashing it all in for amusements. For the virtual thrill of a life of adventure, a battle to fight, a beauty to rescue, we, we cash in all of that significance into a video game. An amused version of an adventure to live, a battle to fight, a beauty to rescue. Or even just in the amusements that are ours. And how frightening is it that if you come to a place where you're kind of searching through movies to watch and you think, you know what? I've seen everything. We've said that. I know we've said that in our own house. I think we, we've, but, but we say, well, we've seen everything that's clean. But even so, if we've seen everything that, that could, could possibly distract us for the moment, what, what has become the trajectory of my life? That was meant to be something in Christ. That has come crashing down to the mundane, to earth, to the profane, to the amused. We're meant to love without limits. We're meant to be deployed for the sake of Christ. We're meant to make a massive difference. As Paul says here, as he preached the gospel, as he brought the love around the world. Secondly, 
Without ourselves in the way, we have faith without fear. There was obviously reason to fear, or else Paul wouldn't have said, I didn't cower. I didn't, I didn't pull back from preaching the gospel. Matter of fact, I preached that they should repent and turn to God in faith. Repentance is not kind of a, a nice thought starter. But how did Jesus begin preaching the gospel? Mark 1.15, Matthew 4.17. Jesus began with this word, repent. Repent and believe the good news. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is upon us. But repentance, as I mentioned earlier, is part of grace. My goodness, who wouldn't want to be unshackled from the sins that enslave us? Who, who wouldn't want to no longer be enslaved to pornography? No longer be enslaved to the kind of the, the, the nastiness of a, of a nicotine cigarette tar habit? Who, who wouldn't want to no longer be enslaved to needing, needing their ego assuaged and, and affirmed by those around you? Who wouldn't want to be set free from the insecurity that requires you to gossip about others to maybe feel better about yourself? Who wouldn't want to be set free from, from the bitterness that just eats at you as, as unforgiveness is, is no longer a possibility? Who wouldn't want to be set free from all of that? That's why the gospel of grace begins with repentance. But we need to not ever shrink back from that and to recognize that with faith, with a faith that has no fear. Paul says that I preach the gospel to you with humility, with, with tears, and with much trial. Well, where, where there was much trial, as, as he speaks of here, he had no fear. He ran into the trials. What is he doing right here? He says everywhere the Holy Spirit is telling me you're going into the teeth of the enemy. But that doesn't matter. Because I don't consider my life worth anything. I just simply am most best expressed with the days that I have, the energy that I have, with all that I have of doing something so much more transcendent, and that is preaching and finishing the work of Jesus. Is that our sensibility? Is that, is that, is that the great ambition of life right now? Some of you are getting ready for college, thinking through majors in school. Some, some of you are thinking about who you might marry. Others are kind of, you're kind of working with your kids. Others you are thinking about, well, what am I going to be doing for retirement? There, there might be a lot of things that are kind of filling us right now that could have reasons for fear. But fear comes in because faith, faith is, is easy where there's no self involved. But where self tries to sneak its, back, its way back in, then faith is incompatible with self. Faith is a trust in Jesus and in his mission and being all in as a trusting childlike, not just obedience, but a trusting childlike dependence upon Christ. And to be excited by the direction of one who loves you so dearly that he purchased you with his blood. Living that kind of faith is an exciting life. And you know every time we do, we come back just overwhelmed with life to the full. is really living. Now I really live when I live by faith rather than by sight. Amen. But most importantly, where we get self out of the way, what Paul displays and what we get to display is Jesus without filters. That's 
What's more important to that if we're trying to reach one another, reach the world for Christ? There's nothing more important. We do not believe in philosophical constructs that if we can master and synchronize, that suddenly we'll have enlightenment and and through that enlightenment, we'll find deliverance. We believe in our Lord. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the historical event of his loving death for us, burial and resurrection. We recognize that the expansion of his love comes through discipleship. As, as Paul follows Christ, so he calls us to follow him. As we follow Christ, so we call others to follow him. The world needs to see Jesus. And they've got a lot of hypocritical versions of Jesus that are undermining faith at every turn. Guess what we get to be? We get to be sincere. We get to be sincere followers of Christ as Paul was himself. You know what's interesting is as Jesus said in in Luke 22, as Luke wrote just a little while ago, that I I need in three more days to to reach my mission. You go tell that fox that, that I am heading to Jerusalem. No matter what. It's almost as though Paul is saying exactly the same thing. Compelled by the spirit of Jesus, I am going to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me there, but I got a few hints from the Holy Spirit. And none of it's good. But I'm going. And, and I mean, he is showing us Jesus right now. My goodness. What if that were the case again and again through us? What a difference our lives would be. Now, again, all we have to do is in Americana culture, just go countercultural and get rid of self. And, and what would Jesus do through me if I got out of the way? I just want to close on that rumination. What could Jesus do through you this week, this season, through into the new year? What could Jesus do through you if you really gave no consideration for self? No entitlement. No making sure that the house was just so, the family was just right, that your, your um, retirement was, was all exactly as you have it planned. Again, th- those are not, not sinful things. But when those things become an exaltation of self, well, then they begin to get in the way of the gospel. Sure, those things find their appropriate place. But more importantly, what if our lives have no regard to our reputation? No regard to our own personal amusement. No regard to to our own self-esteem. But instead, cast all of that aside and be nothing but a vessel like Paul is here for the work of Christ. My goodness, when that happens, there is no limit. When that happens, you'll yell at me for even suggesting just 1 a.m. and 1 p.m. Who do you think we are? What do you think we are? Just some, some sort of people that play church? No! We're disciples of Jesus. We have the Spirit of Christ. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the community of the church. We have the recognition of grace. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ. What wouldn't we do for the sake of Jesus Christ? Church, let's get ourselves out of the way. So that's exactly the way that we live our lives. Amen.